Welcome to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Let's get right to it. So Dave, an online identity protection firm recently estimated that criminals stole up to $400 billion in taxpayer money that was meant to go for unemployment support during COVID. You had the perpetrators from China, Russia, and other countries, along with street gangs here in the U.S. They're pocketing this pandemic unemployment money, most likely to be used for things like terrorism, child and drug trafficking. And this is roughly 50% of the unemployment money. I know that uh, you say that people want to work, but isn't it just time at this point? given the fact that we have more jobs than people who are looking for jobs and so much money going to terrorism and theft that we should cut off the extra $300 weekly unemployment? Well, I think it's, it's going to be ending relatively soon uh, in September, as I understand it. So it's only three more months and a lot of states are already cutting back. And as I said, and as we talked about, fewer than a third of the states offer unemployment insurance to start. But I would just say one thing, first of all, this is another reason why we need to get really tough on cyber crime. We spend $18.7 billion on cyber defense out of a $750 billion military budget. That is really inadequate because cyber crime is the one area. We're good, but in this type of warfare, so is anyone else. So is everyone else. It's the, the, the playing field is level. So, um, and I think it's very sad that a lot of that money has been stolen. Uh, I think overall, the PPP has been a very effective program and it's gotten money to a lot of people and it kept the economy from really cratering and a lot of people from being homeless and being truly destitute. But it certainly could have been a lot more efficient than it was. There, there, there's no question about it. But the unemployment benefits, benefits are winding down soon enough. Well, it's uh, three months that it won't be going to terrorists and gang leaders. So I'd rather just cut it off now and make sure that we stop the fraud. But uh, we can re agree to disagree respectfully because that's what we do on this program. Well, let's move on to our next topic. And that is a study that was published last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They found that the rideshare services, specifically in this study, it was Uber, helped to reduce DUIs and serious injuries from motor vehicle crashes. Now, Dave, do you think the Democrats in California, New York City, Austin, and other places should stop trying to punish Uber, Lyft, and other rideshare services, especially because of data like this? Well, when you say punish, I assume that you that you mean that they're trying to force them to, to treat independent contractors as employees in terms of giving them benefits and, and, and all that. And I think, you know, it, it's a real tough issue, Carrie, because I do think that these services provide a very important part of our economy. But also, when you look at the price, they're very underpriced. Uber has been losing money. Lyft has been losing money. And uh, a lot of these drivers are barely s scraping by. So I think that that the prices need to go up. I think they're they're under market. Uh, and I also believe that every state is, is different on this. I think that, yes, employees need to have uh, basic protections, but I don't think it's wise to force companies to do anything. Well, I'm with you there, but but. But Dave, it sounded like when you said that they need to increase their prices, it sounded like you were being a little Richard Nixon there and calling for price controls, basically. Is that what I'm hearing? No, I would never. Believe me, Nixon was uh, 
was a good president in a lot of ways, but despite the fact that he was a crook, but wage and price controls were not his long suit, just like rent control is an absolute disaster. That could be a topic for one day. No, but I'm just saying that a lot of these services, we as Americans, we're addicted to cheap, plentiful, plentiful services. And that is supplied by a huge network of labor that is often underpaid. So I'm just saying that we, we, we have to make a decision. I think that we can afford to pay more for these services and it's not gonna hurt the economy. So I'm not saying that we should require, but I think a lot of these services could raise prices, take better care of their employees, and it wouldn't hurt the economy or their ridership. We shall see. Let's move on. So foreign policy, Bibi is officially out of power in Israel, and we're not going to delve into the Israel topic right now, which I know is very passionate for both of us. I want to look at specifically about something the Wall Street Journal said about this, which is that Israel's two years of paralyzing uncertainty over its political leadership ought to be a warning to those who would fundamentally alter the tried and true American two-party system. What do you think about the two-party system, Dave? I know you're very interested in innovating in government. Well, I'm, yes. First of all, I think comparing American democracy to Israeli democracy is really apples and oranges in a lot of ways because they're very different in terms of the parliamentary system and multi parties and all that. But putting that aside, I think the two party system is great. I think it's something that served us well. I think the problem right now, and I say this as a loyal Rockefeller Republican, but one of our parties is not serving as a normal political party. It pains me to say this, but I don't know what the Republican Party stands for anymore other than a vessel for the special interest of corporations and our wealthy donors. So many of the principles we used to stand for, fiscal discipline, though that went out the window a long time ago, but free trade, sensible immigration, you know, uh, consistent China policy, strong Russia policy, alliance-based foreign policy, all these things are, are out the window. And now it just seems that all we're about is obstruction and frankly, being autocratic and undemocratic in terms of a lot of the bills that are being pushed through and a lot of people that are promulgating the, the, the big lie. So I think the problem is not the two-party system. I think the two-party system is great. And if you look historically, anytime we've had a third-party candidate, all they do is suck votes away. They never really add anything. Well, that, that's true. I, I'm just going to take issue with the fact that you said orange instead of orange. Clearly, you're from the East Coast originally, <laughs> even though you live in California. <laughs> you know, I don't usually have an accent, but maybe maybe it was coming out a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, well, let's move to our final topic, and that is the wild card topic. And we're going to go to Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis just announced this week that he's going to require high school students to learn about, quote, the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. He's also going to require civics education and CPR training. He earlier had banned CRT, critical race theory, in Florida schools. And I think this is a, basically what he wants to replace it with. What do you think about this? Well, as you and I are in very much agreement, we are not fans of critical race theory. I think it's looking at the prism of everything through racism. I think along those lines, I think the 1619 Project is historical garbage. I do not believe this country was based on slavery. So I think that as far as it's good to educate kids about all types of history. My only worry is, and I support a lot of what Ron DeSantis has done, and by the way, I think he is the most viable challenger in, in 2024. But I, I, get, I just get a little worried when people are 
bringing in curriculum in a reactionary way. I think the kids need to learn about all types of history, the, the conflicts we had with the Soviet Union. And yes, we have a lot of uh, things to be embarrassed about in our history in terms of slavery, in terms of Jim Crow, but this is not a systemically racist country. And I don't think the education system we have should affect that. I think that it should be open-mindedness should be the rule. It's really interesting. I put something out about this praising DeSantis on Twitter and a reply was very interesting. He said, I don't think that the state should be in the business of telling students what to think at all. It should be teaching students how to think. I thought that was thought provoking, but I disagree in the sense that I do think we need to be training uh, students to be good citizens and to be virtuous citizens. That was an antiquated concept. No, I agree with you. I think that you're, you're talking about values, which are the most important things we can teach our kids uh, as opposed to strict curriculum. But one of the things that worries me now is that our country was founded on the premise that people would see and decide. Now it seems awful that so often they're, they decide before they see. Uh, very true, sadly. Well, thanks so much. Another great episode. Yes, this is always great. I always feel that we're just scratching the surface, but so many, so many good questions. And with everything that's going on in our country, we there's so much to talk about. And but I can promise you on this show, we will delve into what we can, and we'll always be honest and give you the, the, uh, the, the straight opinions as we see them. So I guess that does us for does it for another episode of Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer, and I'm Carrie Sheffield. We'll see you next week.